My text today is uh, Revelation chapter 17. I urge you to find that chapter in your Bibles and follow along. Before I get into Revelation 17, however, I have a bit of housekeeping from last week. I started off last week in my introduction telling you a couple of stories about uh, the region around Megiddo. So one story was uh, Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, which is a, a mountain that is at the edge of the plain of Megiddo. And then I told you how that Josiah went out to fight Pharaoh Necho. It was about the year 610, not exactly, but uh, the little mnemonic device that I gave you was in 610, Josiah fought Pharaoh Necho on the plain of Megiddo. So that will give you a kind of a good, a good uh, bookmark on when the southern kingdom of Judah fell. It was around the year 600, 586 exactly, but 610 will help you to get close to it. And then I neglected to tell you how, how those two stories had any relevance to the passage that I preached from last week. So before we get into chapter 17, just uh, take a look back at chapter 16 and verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, in, in Hebrew, the word for mountain is har we would spell it H-A-R. And then Megiddon refers to the plain of Megiddo. So this is the, the, the battle of Armageddon is the battle of the mountain of Megiddo. As I told you last week, Megiddo came to be a figure of speech in Hebrew and among the Israelites analogous to Waterloo in English. So we all, we use Waterloo, it was an actual literal battle where Napoleon was finally defeated, and, um, uh, but it came to be a figure of speech referring to any uh, signal defeat leading to the demise of someone. So we might say that a, a very powerful football team met their Waterloo at such and such a place, or that someone who was very proud met his Waterloo or, uh, or, or something like that. You get the idea. And I think that's how that it is used here. I don't think that we're, we were, are to expect that there was or that there will be a great bloody battle near the mountain of Megiddo. But instead, this is a figure of speech talking about how the Lord wrought great destruction in the first century on the people of Israel. And uh, so that's, that's how that related And I forgot to do that last week, so just a bit of housekeeping. Now, to get you ready for uh, Revelation chapter 17, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, if you are a a regular Bible reader, someone who reads through the Bible every year, for example, or even every couple of years, surely you have been struck at how much of the Bible is denunciation against God's enemies. I mean... So much of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets, so much of it is devoted to God's threats of judgment 
and bringing of judgment against Israel, and then bringing judgment against the nations who were complicit in uh, leading Israel into idolatry or leading Israel into uh, captivity. And uh, it's just remarkable. I, I hate to venture what percentage of the Bible consists of that sort of denunciations, but I'm convinced that it's over 50%. Now, one of the uh, advantages and disadvantages of expository preaching is that if you just are preaching through the Bible, then a fair amount of uh, the material that I'm responsible to preach from is not really uh, clap your hands, happy Jesus passages of Scripture. There's a, a whole lot of the Bible that has to do with the judgment that God brings. And uh, so I'm feeling that in the book of Revelation. So here we are at the beginning of another vision that is going to last for four chapters, 17, 18, 19, and 20. And it is a vision that consists primarily of, of uh, denunciation against Israel and against the Roman Empire and those that God used to bring punishment upon Israel. Uh, but uh, I, I confess to you that I am feeling a little weary with it. And uh, consider the possibility of preaching all four chapters at one swing uh, and getting it over with. But I didn't figure you wanted to hear a two-hour sermon. And so we will probably just uh, take it a chapter at a time. And pray that the Lord blesses it, because this is the Word of God. These, uh, this obviously is an important aspect of God's character that we need to embrace, that we need to take into account as we seek to know the Lord. The Lord is not only a God of grace and mercy. He is also a God of wrath and a God of jealousy and a God of justice. And the passage of Scripture that we're studying today and I anticipate that we will be studying for the next three weeks as well, emphasizes that. Now hold on, because in chapters 21 and 22, things get resplendently glorious with the marriage of the Lamb and the, the descent of the new heavens and the new earth. And so the, the chapter ends with a, a joyful, uh, joyful, happy conclusion, and uh, we can look forward to that and if the Lord blesses, then by the end of the year, we will have gone all the way through the book of Revelation. Even though it has probably been the least fun series of sermons that I have ever been through, uh, nevertheless, I, I am experiencing a great deal of relief because preaching this series of sermons has forced me to arrive at some conclusions as to what it all means. Again, if you are a Bible reader, uh, as I have been throughout most all of my life, most years reading the Bible through once, sometimes reading the Bible through twice in a year, when I get to the book of Revelation, it's, it's just almost frustrating because through all these years that I've been reading the book of Revelation, I don't know what it means. And, uh, of course, I'm exposed to this view and to that view, but having to preach through it has forced me to take a position. And, uh, and so I, 
as I anticipate reading the book of Revelation in the years to come, if the Lord gives me life, I I think that I will at least have an understanding of what it means. Uh, One other thing, uh, I am sure that among the people of Bullet Lick, there are people who have decided views on the book of Revelation that uh, disagree with the view that I am taking. But I haven't heard of a single fuss, and no one has grumped at me even one time. The compliments going out are carefully phrased. <laughs> so it's not that was, you know, really good, or uh, I agree with you, but thank you for your labor in the text. <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. So I can appreciate that. And, uh, and even, even after all the... In fact, I've been studying the book of Revelation very carefully for about three years. Even after three years, when I come to some things in Revelation chapter 17, and I'm going to give you what I think it means, I still have to say, I think. I'm just not 100% sure on all of this. Now, the good news is that uh, there is no cardinal doctrine that is essential to our salvation that is dependent on any scripture in the book of Revelation. And so there's room for considerable disagreement on what the book of Revelation means. And uh, you and I, who, who may disagree on what it means, can still both be in the camp of orthodoxy. And thank God, more important than being in the camp of orthodoxy, be in the family of God. And so I appreciate the, uh, the generosity the, the, with which you have heard this series of sermons and, uh, and plead for your ongoing patience and generosity as, uh, as I try to preach what I believe this means. So in this chapter, uh, we have uh, two very controversial characters. The first is the great prostitute, And the second one is the beast. Now, we've already encountered the beast, and I think that the beast that we see here is the same beast that we encountered earlier, the beast that arises out of the sea, which I identified as being the Roman Empire in general and the the Emperor Nero in particular. I believe that the book of Revelation was written at the time when Nero was still alive. Nero died in June of 68, and uh, when Nero died, the kingdom was plunged into deep disarray. In fact, many historians uh, testify that they thought that the Roman Empire was over uh, when Nero died. But uh, following Nero, there was a man named Galba, G-A-L-B-A, that uh, was emperor. He was emperor for only seven months. And then following him, there were a couple of others. So within one year... Rome had three emperors, and then uh, a, new, a new person came along. The Flavian dynasty came along, and it was headed up by a guy named Vespasian. I don't expect you to remember all these names. So there was a guy named Vespasian who, in fact, had been the general who was marshalling the siege of Jerusalem. And when, when Vespasian heard that Rome was in such disarray, Then he left the troops around Jerusalem in charge of his son Titus. Vespasian goes back and becomes the emperor and brings stability. So it looked like the Roman Empire had died. And then when Vespasian comes back, it comes back to life. 
Vespasian is followed by his son Titus, and then so on. That's enough of, that's enough of Roman history. So I'm going to identify the beast as the Roman Empire in general and Nero in particular. And uh, if you're curious about how I arrived at that conclusion, you could, you could find the sermons on chapters 13 and 14 in the archive on the website. Perhaps even more controversial than identifying the beast as Rome is the fact that I identify the great prostitute who is described here as Jerusalem. And uh, there are numerous reasons that I have for that. I will mention a few of them. The other contestant for people who take my perspective on the book of Revelation, which is labeled the preterist view, and preterist just means that we believe, I believe, that most of what is spoken of in the book of Revelation was prophesied concerning something that was going to happen very soon. So I was really moved to adopt this position because of what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. I think that the book of Revelation is like a, a, poetic, a poetic exposition of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says all these things that I have described, these cataclysmic, cosmic, geological uh, disasters are going to happen within the generation of people who are standing here listening to me. And he says such things as the sun becoming black like sackcloth and the moon becoming like blood and the stars of sky falling to the earth. So then I take it that he's not talking about the literal sun becoming black or the literal moon becoming like blood or the literal stars of the universe crashing into the earth. Instead, he's using poetic, metaphorical language to talk about the death of an old universe and the birth of a new universe, but I'm still speaking metaphorically. To lay aside the metaphor, he's talking about the abolition of the old covenant that had lasted for uh, more than a thousand years and the establishment of the new covenant of uh, faith through Jesus Christ. The new covenant is no longer determined by your ethnic background. So it doesn't matter if you are a Jew, you can be part of the new covenant because if you have faith in Jesus then you are uh, the, the children of offspring and heirs according to the promise. And so, but this has been such a big part of God's plan for more than a thousand years. When Jesus describes its demise, then he describes it in terms of a, a universe collapsing and another universe being born. And so, uh, for people who have that perspective, that Jesus is talking about something that happened at the destruction of of uh, Jerusalem in 70 AD, and that the book of Revelation is an, ex an exposition of the Olivet Discourse, there, are, there is disagreement about who the prostitute is. So for people who are preterists, there's disagreement. Uh, and we settle on either the prostitute is Jerusalem or the prostitute is the city of Rome. And so uh, I, I go with the city of Jerusalem for reasons that I will give to you, but let's first of all read the first part of this chapter that describes the, the great prostitute. Verse seven, chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute 
who is seated on many waters. Well, instead of reading the whole passage all at once, maybe I'll just make a few mentions as I go through and then tell you my reasons for thinking that this is Jerusalem. So for one thing, how could it be said that Jerusalem is seated on many waters? Well, in the Bible, waters, the sea, often refer to the Gentile nations. And at this point in history, Israel has been scattered among the nations for hundreds and hundreds of years. So there were considerable Jewish populations in Rome, in Caesarea, uh, in Alexandria. In fact, Josephus says that uh, at the time of the war on Jerusalem, there were 50,000 Jews who were killed and, and stacked in the streets of Alexandria. And so there were similar purgings throughout the Roman Empire of Jews uh, who, who were scattered <coughs> over many waters, which is a figurative way of saying that they were scattered among the Gentile nations. And so the, uh, the angel says, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, which I take to be dispersed among the Gentile nations, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Now, you might say, how could Jerusalem, this tiny city, have so much influence that appears to be worldwide? Well, first of all, remember that the word that is here translated earth, I think would be more accurately translated land. So that this is not so much a worldwide judgment that is in view as it is a, a localized judgment. And there were rulers in the land of Israel who were referred to as kings. So, for example, I'll not have you turn here, but you can find it in, in Acts chapter 4. Uh, the preacher, I, I believe it's yeah, Peter, is preaching a sermon there. And he quotes part of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and why do the kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed? Kings of the earth. So he quotes from Psalm 2 and then listen to what he says next. For in this city, Herod and Pontius Pilate gathered forces against the Lord Jesus Christ. So Psalm number two says the kings of the earth have taken counsel together and then Peter identifies them as guys who were local rulers in the land of Israel. Now that's one consideration to take into place. When, when it says the kings of the earth, with whom the kings of the earth committed sexual immorality, it could more accurately be translated with whom the kings of the land the surrounding areas around Jerusalem and the, the people who were ruling in the land of Palestine, even they were corrupted with the corruptions that came out of Jerusalem. That's one possible answer. The second possible answer is something that I pointed out to you when I was reading in our scripture readings from Ezekiel chapter 16. And that's what I described as Israel having a disproportionate influence on the world. So that uh, Israel was having influence far above her batting, her batting average. I mean, she was just really having an influence around the world. Now, if you have in your mind a little uh, map of the Mediterranean region, 
then you can get some, uh, some understanding as to why this is so, even from a secular point of view. Israel is situated on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea, where it is today. Just north, you've got Syria. A little farther north into the east, you've got uh, uh, Babylon and Assyria. And uh, then if you go around the, the northern part of the Mediterranean, you've got Asia Minor. And it's not long until you get to what is today Turkey and what was then Greece and still is today Greece today and Spain. And then if you go below the Mediterranean, then you've got Egypt with its city of Alexandria. And, but anyway, if you're going to go from, uh, say, Greece to Egypt, and you don't have a ship, you've got to go through Israel. And if you're going to go from Babylon, and you're going to go trading with Egypt, then the trade route is going to take you through Israel. Now, back in those days, they didn't have holiday inns, Motel 6s. They had inns, and those inns would provide you with a meal. And when you got there and you were tired and hungry, then they would provide you with a meal. And then you would sit around and you would talk with the other people in what we might think of as the dining room. You'd sit around and you'd talk with other people. And there would be Jewish hosts in there and there would be Jewish people, probably Jewish locals, telling stories. And uh, they, would, uh, they would tell stories. What kind of stories would they tell? Well, the Jewish people would tell stories from their history, would tell stories from the Bible. And so, to me, it is no wonder that the myths of Greek and Rome are filled with stories that are very similar to stories from the Bible. Uh, I think that what the Greeks and the Romans did was, you know, they passed through Israel. They heard this great story about Noah and the flood, and then they, they go back and they take it into their country. Or they hear the story about how sin entered the world through Eve, and then they take that story back to their country. And they, they substitute Eve with, uh, with Penelope, and they... Uh, you know, uh, Pandora, I meant to say, and they substitute Adam with someone else. And so there are all these Bible stories that have echoes in, in the myths of, of Greece and of Rome. And so that is a second explanation as to how Israel has such uh, influence uh, in, the, in the civilized world, but that's only answer 2A. Answer 2B is that this is a story not primarily about Israel's political influence or her influence in the world of philosophy, but her influence religiously. And so the main focus of the Bible, of course, is not, is not political history, it's not philosophical history, but uh, it, is of, uh, it is of religious history, and particularly the history of redemption, uh, which was couched in the, the history of Israel for hundreds of years. By the way, before I, before I move on, uh, let me say to you students who may eventually be assigned to read the philosophy of Plato, you'll read things in Plato that you think, this sounds so much like the Bible. How did he learn this? And I have strong suspicion that Plato had been influenced to the teaching of the Hebrew Scriptures. But anyway, that's, uh, most of you will never read a word of Plato as far as you know. Your lives are influenced by Plato. You don't know it, but most of you won't, won't read Plato. But when you do, then just keep that in mind. I think that Plato was heavily influenced by the, 
the Hebrew Scriptures. But uh, now, that's just an aside. The point that I'm making here is that, how, you know, I'm saying, answering the question, how could, Israel, how could Judah, Jerusalem, this little tiny town, be said to be the, the, the town with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the kings of the earth have become drunk? And so that was my answer to that. But, you know, someone might say, well, it sounds to me like it could be Rome. I mean, Rome is far more, far more influential. Agreed from a political perspective, that is, case, that is the case. But remember, Jesus said the destruction of this, this city is going to take place within the lifetime of people standing here. And Rome is not going to be, Rome doesn't fit that description. The city of Rome is not going to be sacked by the Goths for several hundred years into the future. And so if, according to the sermon, on the, the sermon on the Olivet Discourse, and if according to Revelation 1 and Revelation chapter 22, these things are going to take place soon, then I think it makes more sense that it applies to Jerusalem rather than applying to Rome. And then also, uh, Jerusalem has been the focus of this prophecy up to this point, and it would seem unusual that suddenly he's going to talk about the destruction of Rome. So I continue to explain to you why I think that it's Jerusalem and not Rome. Now, verse 3, he says, And he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness. Now, when I think of wilderness, I think of beautiful mountains in the western United States, snow-capped mountains and so on. I, I, think, I think of all of that. That is not what you're supposed to think of when you think, see the word wilderness in the Bible. This is, not, this is not a camping trip into the woods. Instead, when you read about wildernesses in the Bible, it, you're almost immediately uh, explained, this is a place where jackals will prowl and where the owls will inhabit, the ostrich will lay her, ne- her nest there, the lions. It's, it's supposed to be a creepy place that you don't want to be. And so a little later on, when John is shown the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, it is in a high mountain. But here where he showed the old Jerusalem as a prostitute, it's out into the wilderness. And by the way, that's another reason why I think that this is a description of Jerusalem, the old city, is because the book of Revelation presents a series of contrasts. And one of those is the contrast of the old Jerusalem with the new Jerusalem. And so in a few chapters, we'll see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It is a contrast uh, between the prostitute and the bride. I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her, her bridegroom. And so that's yet another reason why I think that Jerusalem is being described here. He's in the wilderness Not in a beautiful wilderness, but a creepy wilderness full of dangerous animals. And that's where he sees a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. We have seen this beast before. We saw him uh, rising out of the the ocean. and, uh, And I gave a description there, but we'll come back to the beast with seven heads and ten horns. It's enough now to say, to say again, I believe that this represents Rome in general and Nero in particular. 
But back to the woman in verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. Now this is, uh, this is kind of religious language. The, uh, the dress of the high priest was purple and scarlet. Some of the, uh, the colorings, the tapestries in the temple and in the tabernacle were made of purple and scarlet and interwoven with gold. And uh, she has in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So on the outside, the cup looks really good. But on the inside, it's full of abominations. Does that remind you of what Jesus said concerning the Pharisees of his day? You make the outside of the cup clean, but inside it is full of dead men's bones. It's full of abominations. So yet another, another reason why I think this is Jerusalem. It meets the description that Jesus gave of Jerusalem. And her cup, beautiful on the outside, is nasty on the inside. And then another reference to uh, a parody of the Old Testament priest's attire is what she's got on her head. Now, the Old Testament priest wore a little headband, and on his headband was a little gold plate that said, Holiness to the Lord. But now look at what is written on the head of the prostitute. On our forehead, verse 5 says, was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, And there is yet another reason why I take this to be Jerusalem, because it fits the description that Jesus gave of Jerusalem, that a prophet cannot die outside of Jerusalem. All of the responsibility for the saints and prophets who have been killed through the ages in Jerusalem is going to come on this generation. And so we are about to see the final destruction of Jerusalem here. But now the attention turns from the prostitute to the beast. So let's see what it says about the beast. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Now, he doesn't say much about the woman after this. He will later on in chapter 18. But now he devotes his attention to the beast. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. I explained to you in my introductory comments what I think this refers to. In the year 68, in June of 68, the Emperor Nero, who had been reigning for 14 years, committed suicide. Everybody knew that he was a a vicious and vile beast. Uh, In in ancient writings, uh, he is described in the most despicable terms. It would be It would be hard to say if anyone in the ancient world was as despised as Nero. And and so in 68, uh, he, he commits suicide. And it looks like that means the dissolution of the Roman Empire. So it looks like the Roman Empire dies. There is a scurry for power. In the next few months, there are three emperors on the throne. And then Vespasian comes and takes over, and it comes back to life. And so I think that's what's referred to here. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. So God is going to use the Romans to punish his people, but similar to the way that he used the Babylonians and then punished them, 
used the Assyrians and then punished them. He's also going to use Rome and then send Rome to destruction. This is going to be very impressive to the people who see it because they think, wow, the Roman Empire is over. But it says in the middle of verse 9, and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written, verse 8 rather, who have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now that's pretty much a giveaway that this refers to the Roman Empire, but the, Rome, the city of Rome, because the city of Rome famously is the city of seven hills. Just like we call Chicago the Windy City, and um, I can't think of other cities that we have nicknames for, maybe you can, but just like we call Chicago the Windy City, then uh, Rome was known as the city on seven hills. And so the fact that the seven heads are seven hills says, okay, this is Rome. So that tells us where it is geographically, and then what he says next about the seven heads help us to place it historically. Look what he says next. They're not only seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Verse 10, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So, there were five, five kings that had ruled majestically and powerfully in the Roman Empire. Their names will be familiar. Some of you will know Julius Caesar. He was the first one. And then he was uh, followed by uh, Tiberius. No, he's number three. So, uh, I, I'm, who, who was king in the day that the census was taken? Uh, uh, the emperor? Augustus, number two. Right, thank you. So, uh, Julius Caesar first, and then Augustus at the time that Jesus was born. And then followed by Tiberius, the Sea of Galilee was named after him. And, uh, and then number four would be uh, Claudius. And then there's another guy with the letter C, I can't think of his name, who's the fifth one. And then the sixth one is Nero. So five of the guys are already dead, and Nero is ruling at the time that this book is being written. When Nero dies, then a guy named Galba, G-A-L-B-A, is going to take, and he's going to rule for just seven months. But really, to say that the, the, the seventh one is going to be there for just a little while could refer to the next three, because stability is not restored for about a year. But uh, this, this sets the time that we know, we know where it is, the city on seven hills. We know the, geograph- we know the political time. Historically, it's after the, after the, the death of these five kings, one is, that's Nero, he's about, he's about to commit suicide, and then there's going to come one that will come for just a little while after that. The, Rome, the Roman Empire itself is the foundation for these seven kings. I think that's the meaning of verse 11. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. So n- not necessarily an eighth king, but an eighth ruling principle, the, the Roman Empire will go on for several hundred years, but eventually uh, the city of Rome, uh, the beast, is going to be destroyed. Now the ten horns 
in verse 12, the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. There are some commentaries that make an attempt to name the ten kings. I tend to think that the number ten, like the number seven, is more of a symbolic number that just says this, this is a, a full uh, attempt. There are ten kings. There's a full attempt that is going to be made against the Lamb, which is what we read of next. So verse 12 says, The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So there's no way that the kingdoms of this world are going to be successful in their attempt to attack Jesus and to attack his people. They may kill his people, but they do not die. They live forever in heaven. So we've seen the identity of the prostitute. It is Jerusalem. We've seen the identity of the beast. It is Rome and the Roman Empire and Nero. And now we see finally the waters, verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So I've already explained to you how that the Jewish people were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Now look what happens to them. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city. It's not the first time Jerusalem has been called that in, in the book of Revelation. So the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth, or better, the kings of the land. And so, uh, as I mentioned in my introductory comments, when, uh, when the Roman forces decimated the city of Jerusalem, there were also similar desolations that took place against the Jewish population throughout the empire because the beast and the kings hate the prostitute. They are cooperating together. The prostitute, Jerusalem, her influence is riding on the back of Rome at this point, and she is trying to accommodate Rome that when they crucified Jesus, the people said, we have no king but Caesar. And then they said, his blood be upon us, talking about Jesus, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And so now we see that, uh, that, that terrible, terrible oath that they took is coming to pass. And the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is being shed upon them. And he is using the very political power that they had hoped to appease with their compromises. Several brief uh, points of application. One is that we as the people of God must never be silent about our opposition to the advances of wickedness in our culture. You may be tempted to say, I am just one person and there's nothing that I can do about it. There's nothing that I can say about it. It's best for me just to keep my mouth shut and keep my head low. And if enough people do that, then good will roll over, then good 
will roll over and die, and evil will roll over us like an asphalt steamroller. We must not just be silent and let the wicked one take over our schools and take over our culture and influence our families. We cannot be complicit, compromising with the beast like these people of Jerusalem were. The beast will turn on you and devour you. The beast doesn't love Jesus and his people. And I'm talking about the beast that is around us. I'm no prophet, so I'm not making a prediction. But if judgment begins at the house of God, as the Bible says, and if God poured out his wrath on the people who had been his covenant people for over a thousand years, then what is in store for our nation with all of the immorality, with all of the atrocities against unborn babies, and with all of the glorifying of sexual immorality and perversion that you're risking your job if you refer if you refer to someone by pronouns that he or she doesn't prefer how can god look upon that and not bring judgment i hope that it's not too late but use the voice that you have use the voice that you have in your sphere of influence, that may be just your family, then then use it in your family. It may be that you may have only one person at work that you talk to, then use it with that one person at work. It may be that your influence is just in being able to vote this coming Tuesday a week for the preservation of the lives of unborn babies. Do what you can, but don't just capitulate and say, there's nothing that I can do. The Lord poured out his judgment upon the people that he had loved and been patient with for a thousand years. Do not think that our nation or any nation can escape the wrath of God. And then finally, a word to those of you who read a passage of scripture like this and uh, and think, well, that's that's terrible. I, I will never align myself with the beast. I I pray God that it is true. Of course, I think that all this is in the past, but I think that the principles that led to it in the past are principles that are at work right now. And uh, the fact of the matter is that if you are not aligned unapologetically with the Lord Jesus Christ, you are even now cooperating with evil forces that are against Jesus. And I know you're probably like I was. You don't think that you hate Jesus. You don't think that you are against principles of righteousness. I thought the same thing. But Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. And so, repent. Turn away from your sin. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you will become part of the new Jerusalem. You will become part of the bride that we read about is being, it will one day be married to the Lord Jesus Christ and be with him throughout all eternity. Well, I know that I've gone uh, considerably longer than I usually go, and so.